would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at uh, the last half of chapter 16. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. As you're turning there, I'll just give you a quick snapshot of where we're going to be going over the next few weeks. Uh, Today, we're coming to the end of chapter 16, and that will mark the end of what we have been looking at for a number of uh, weeks, what we've been calling the Upper Room Discourse, or the Farewell Discourse, where Jesus and his disciples are together right before he's going to the cross. We're finishing that today. And then for the next four Sundays, which are the Sundays of Advent, we're going to be looking at John chapter 17, this wonderful prayer that Jesus gave where he actually prays for us in his prayer. We'll be looking looking at that over the Sundays of Advent. Then in January, we're going to take a short break from John and we're going to be looking at a number of the Psalms and seeing what God would teach us from those Psalms. And then we'll be jumping back into John. Uh, John chapter 18, as we line up what we're reading in John with things like Good Friday and Easter. So that's kind of where we're going, but today we're going to be looking at these final verses in chapter 16. So I'm begin in verse 16. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter. This is Jesus speaking. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. 
Father, we need your help to understand what we read as we seek to meditate and reflect for a few moments on these words of Jesus. I pray you would open our eyes and our hearts to see what you want us to see. Help us to see Jesus. And as a result, Father, encourage us, strengthen us, equip us, challenge us, and make us, Father, more and more like our Savior. For we ask it in his name. Amen. I have a friend who has a fairly unusual way of reading books, particularly novels. And some of you are going to think it's heretical. What he does is he opens the novel and reads the first 30 pages of the novel. Then he stops, turns to the last 30 pages and reads the last 30 pages of the novel and then decides if he's going to read the rest of the book. Now, he says he does this for a couple reasons, and one of the reasons is that he doesn't like emotional angst, and he wants to know what's happening, and he wants to know what's going to come at the end. But he also says that he does that because if he does decide to read the book, it helps him to persevere to the end. If he knows the end of the story, he's encouraged to persevere through it. Jesus has been telling his disciples about the end of the story. He's been doing it numerous times in these, ver- in these uh, chapters we've been looking at, the Upper Room Discourse. And he did it again here in our passage today, the very last verse. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the end of the story. And Jesus is telling them. Why did he tell them the end of the story? Well, he told them because he wants, the G- that he wants his disciples to persevere to the end. He knew what was coming for them. He knew it was going to be hard and difficult and scary. And he knew that they were going to face persecution from people who hated them because of their faith in Jesus. And he knew that most of them were going to be killed because of their relationship with Jesus. He was about to leave. They were going to be on their own. And he knew the things that were coming were going to be incredibly hard. And so he wanted to make sure that they were listening and hearing and knowing the end of the story. No matter how scary, no matter how hard life was going to get, the end of the story was Jesus wins. Jesus overcomes the world. And so he looks at them and he looks at us and he said, because you know the end of the story, stay the course. Keep going. Don't give up. Persevere in the faith. And we need that reminder. We need to be reminded regularly how the ultimate story ends. Perhaps our lives are not as hard and scary as the lives that these first disciples experienced, at least especially in terms of the persecution that they went through. But our lives can be difficult in other ways. We face suffering. We face sorrow. Sometimes we do face persecution. We're tempted to doubt our faith wavers and we wonder if all that we have to go through is actually worth it. And so Jesus speaks to us today through his word and he says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. When that truth When that reality, when the end of the story grips our hearts and our minds, the more we will have the strength to keep going. Why? 
Because that truth that Jesus wins changes everything about our lives. So let's look today in these verses and see what Jesus says about how our lives are different and changed because the end of the story is that Jesus wins. We'll see, he tells us three things today. First of all, that our sorrow is overcome by joy. Secondly, that our prayers are answered. And thirdly, that tribulation is going to come to an end. So first of all, sorrow overcome by joy. Now, when we read these first verses in our passage today, we see and are reminded of the truth that Jesus was a realist. He did not hold things back from these disciples. He didn't sugar, sugarcoat things. You can see that as he, as he speaks in verse 16 and following. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Just a few, few verses later in verse 25, Jesus tells them that he often uses figures of speech and talking with them. And sometimes the truth that Jesus was telling them was veiled to them. The disciples didn't always understand what Jesus was talking about. And here is one of those occasions. But we know what Jesus was talking about. In a little while, in a matter of just hours, Jesus would be arrested and he would be taken away from the disciples. And then he was going to be killed on a cross. He was going to be buried in a tomb, really taken away from them and they would not see him. But in three days, he would rise from the dead. He would be resurrected and then they would get to see him again. And eventually the Holy Spirit was going to come to them and come into them. And then Jesus would commune with his disciples forever through the Holy Spirit. But Jesus shot straight with these disciples. He didn't sugarcoat what he was saying. He tells them at the beginning of verse 20 that they were going to weep and lament. Those words in the Greek are the words that are used for wailing, wailing in grief and agony. You, you've seen it even recently, the people in the Middle East, as they grieve the loss of loved ones and how they wail and grieve the loss of their loved ones. That was the reality. That was what was coming for them. That's the truth that Jesus told them. But then he tells them another truth. The end of verse 20. Because Jesus had overcome the world, because Jesus ultimately wins, the sorrow, the grief will turn to joy. Yet notice in these verses, Jesus tells them and us several things about this joy that is theirs because they are in relationship with Jesus. He tells them that it is a certain joy. Look at the beginning of verse 22. He says, your hearts will rejoice. And notice, too, at the beginning of verse 20, it's Jesus speaking and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, that's the Greek word for amen. Amen, amen, Jesus says, truly, truly, it will be so that your hearts will rejoice. Now, when King Jesus says, amen, amen, may it be so, it will 
be so. Jesus told his disciples and he tells us that, yes, there is sorrow now for a time, but there is joy for you in Christ. And that is absolutely certain. It is certain that our hearts will rejoice. But it's not just certain. Jesus also says it will be permanent. That's what he says at the end of verse 22. No one, he says, will take your joy from you. Now, if Jesus who knows all things, says that no one is going to take your joy from you, that means that no one is able to. Our joy in Christ can ebb and flow. It can be diminished. It can be weighed down by the things of this earth. But Jesus' point is, in Him, our joy never ultimately leaves us. It always comes back. But you say, and I say, but what about... When the circumstances of our life are hard and difficult. Well, Jesus addressed that as well. He said not only is the joy in Christ certain and permanent, he went on to say that it is greater than our circumstances. You see this illustration that Jesus uses in verses, verse 21, a common, uh, easy to understand illustration for the people when they heard it. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. You see this illustration that Jesus uses, a woman experiencing pain in the process of giving birth to a child. And remember, this is Jesus speaking in the first century. No hospitals. Epidurals weren't a thing back then. Women going through pregnancy, going through delivery, experienced the pain that they experienced was particularly real. But what did Jesus say? Once that child has arrived, the pain and the anguish, they they begin to fade away. Maybe not immediately, maybe not even quickly. But the child that has arrived causes the mother to forget the pain. The joy of the child captivates the mother in such a way that the pain that she went through isn't as much on her mind at that point. Let's reflect on this just for a moment. Jesus doesn't say here that there isn't any pain. He says the opposite. There is pain. There is suffering. There is sorrow. But his point is that even that even when the circumstances of our lives bring pain and suffering and worry and grief for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is a deeper joy. Not a joy because of the sorrow, but a deeper joy in the midst of the sorrow, deeper than the grief. Our joy in Christ is greater than our greater than our circumstances. One commentator that I read put it this way. If our joy is anchored not in the circumstances of life, but in Jesus's love for us, then when the sorrow and the grief comes, it drives us deeper into the source of our joy. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if your source of joy is in the circumstances of your life, then when the circumstances of your life are not joyous, your joy will be gone. But if your source of joy is Jesus' love for you, then when the circumstances get difficult and hard and the sorrows come, it drives you back to the source. It drives you back to Jesus and His love for you. He says that our Joy that we have in Christ is greater than our circumstances. It's permanent. It's certain. He also says it's objective. 
It's not subjective. The joy he talks about is not vague. It's not shadowy. It's not just a feeling. It's objective. It's, it's real. It's concrete. Did you notice that four times in, in these verses, Jesus tells the disciples that they're going to see him. He says it in verse 16. He says it again in verse 17. He says it in verse 19. And in verse 22, he says that he will see them. The disciples were going to get to see Jesus again after his resurrection, before his ascension. They weren't going to just have to think about him. They weren't going to have to recall memories of what he said and and what he did. They were going to actually see Jesus objectively. And that objectively seeing Jesus would lead to their joy. The same is true for us, brothers and sisters in Christ. We, We don't get to see Jesus as these first disciples did until Jesus returns on his second coming. But the joy that is ours because the Jesus loves us is no less objective. Now we have the Holy Spirit living in us, living with us. And as we saw last week, Jesus said that that's even better than seeing him in flesh and blood. We have the Father. We have Jesus because we have the Holy Spirit in us. And that reality leads to real, true, deep joy. Because Jesus wins, because Jesus has overcome the world, it changes how we live our lives now. We don't have to deny or to live like there's no sorrow or grief or hardships or difficulties in life. There are plenty. But we know and we believe that in the midst of those hard things, we have joy because Jesus loves us. And that joy, he says, is certain. It is permanent. It is greater than our circumstances. It's objective. It reminds us of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's the first thing that's different for us, how our lives are changed because the end of the story is Jesus wins, is that we have sorrow that is overcome by joy. But secondly, the second thing that changes for us because Jesus wins is that we have prayers that are answered. We have hope that our prayers are answered. We see that in verses 23 and following. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you until now. You have received nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the father on your behalf for the father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Six times in verses 23 to 26, Jesus talks about asking for things in prayer. And he also talks about those prayers being answered. Notice what Jesus said about how we should pray. He says that we are to pray in his name. He points out that up until then, the disciples hadn't prayed in Jesus' name. But now, because of what was about to take place, they were to pray in Jesus' name. That's important and encouraging news for us. It means that as Jesus went away from those disciples, 
As the Holy Spirit came to them and to us, now they had and we have direct access to the Father through the Holy Spirit because of the completed work of the Son. It meant that they could now pray to the Father with the power and the authority of Jesus, and we can do the same. And as they did, the Father would give to them what they asked. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is true for us as well. If we pray to the Father through the Holy Spirit in the name of the Son, we have assurance that our prayers will be answered. Maybe not exactly like we want them to be. Maybe not exactly like we pray them. But we have the assurance that God will answer our prayers. I picked up a way of thinking about this from someone. I don't remember who said it. But it goes something like this. The Father will give us everything we would have asked if we knew all that He knows. As we pray to the Father in Jesus' name and in accord with Jesus' purpose and His will, then we have assurance that He will answer those prayers. So let's reflect on that for a moment. What are some things that we know? What are some things we know with certainty that are in accord with the purpose and the will of Jesus. We know that he desires and delights in us conquering the sin in our lives. Of, of rooting it out. We know that the Lord wants the good news of the gospel to spread to every nation and tribe and language. We know that the Lord desires us to glorify him in our vocations as we seek to be good workers. We know that the Lord wants us to be good stewards of all the resources that he has given to us. We know that the Lord wants to strengthen our faith and draw us closer to himself as we go through illnesses and sickness. These are things we know are in accord with the will and the purpose of Jesus. We should pray for these things. All our prayers will be answered as we pray according to the purpose and the will of the Lord. And why do we know that that's the case? Well, what did Jesus say in verse 27? Because the Father loves us. That's why we know that our prayers will be answered, because our Father loves us. Your Father loves you more than you can love anybody else or anybody else could love you. Your Father knows you and He loves you. And because that's true, you can know that He's going to answer your prayers. Now, let me just say something very quick, a quick comment about verse 27. Sometimes we look at verse 27 and it might sound like Jesus is saying that the Father's love for us is a result of us loving Jesus and believing in Jesus. As if we're earning the Father's love by doing something, by, by meriting it. But that's not the sense of the Greek words that Jesus spoke here. And we also know that that can't be what Jesus meant because we have other places in the scriptures that speak into that very issue. Even John himself in one of his letters says that we love because God loved us first. Jesus here is speaking about a reciprocating love, a responding love. The Lord loves us first. We love and believe in him. He continues and perseveres in his love for us. That's the main point that Jesus is getting across in this verse. That the father loves us and that's why we can know. That our prayers are going to be answered. So here's the second thing that we can look at and see how our lives are different. Because we know the end of the story and Jesus wins. Prayers are answered. But third and finally, we see that because Jesus wins, because Jesus overcomes the world, we have the hope and we have the promise that tribulation will end. 
Again, Jesus doesn't sugarcoat things with these disciples. He knew what their lives were going to be like. He knew what was going to happen very soon. And so he tells them plainly in verses 29 through 32, you are going to be scattered. That The hour is coming. In fact, the hour has come and you are going to be scattered. You're going to go to your homes and you're going to leave me alone. There is significant irony going on in this part of the conversation. Jesus had just told them in verse 25 that he used figures of speech, metaphors, and talking with them. But he says, a time is coming when I would no longer use figures of speech with you and I will speak plainly to you. And the disciples in verse 29 make this claim. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. You see, the disciples, were they heard Jesus say that the hour was coming when he was going to be speaking plainly. And they thought that hour for them was now. But Jesus wasn't speaking about now. Jesus was, Jesus was speaking when the Holy Spirit would come, when he would open their eyes and he would lead them into all truth that we saw earlier in uh, the section of John that we are in. So Jesus responds back to the disciples in verse 31 and he says this. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? It's almost as if Jesus has an eyebrow lifted. And he's incredulous and he says, ah, now you think you believe in me, do you? Well, let me tell you what's coming. Let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be put on trial. And when that happens, you're going to scatter. You're going to run. You're going to flee. You're going to go to your homes and hide and you're going to abandon me. And he says in verse 33 that tribulation is coming for them. That word in the Greek means trouble, oppression, distress, and affliction. The disciples were going to be scattered. But then he goes on and he tells them what he says in verse 33. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Take heart, he says. The word means to be firm and resolute in the face of danger or trouble or difficult circumstances. It means to be courageous. In this world, he says, there is and there will be tribulation. There will be danger. There will be trouble. There will be hard circumstances. There will be sorrow and grief and possibly even persecution. But he says, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must take heart. We must stand firm and resolute in the face of tribulation. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Because in the end, Jesus wins. That is the end of the story. And did you notice that Jesus actually foreshadowed everything he was going to do in verse 28? One sentence, one verse. Look at what he said. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. There it is, all in one verse. Jesus came from the Father. It shows his deity and authority. Jesus came into the world showing his incarnation. Jesus was then leaving the world showing his atoning death on the cross. And Jesus was going back to the Father showing his resurrection and ascension and his mission being accomplished. Jesus told the disciples the entire plan of redemption in that one statement. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is why we are to take heart. Yes, there are and there will be tribulations in this world and in our lives. But the tribulations come to an end because we know the end of the story. Jesus wins. Through his deity, his incarnation, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, Jesus overcomes the world. Let's think about it this way. Let's go back to the illustration that Jesus used in verse 21. Did you notice the language that Jesus used as he was speaking about this woman in the illustration? When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Why? Because her hour has come. Now that's a unique statement, a unique phrase. But it's a common phrase that Jesus used over and over and over again. And in John's gospel, that phrase, the hour of Jesus, always means the same thing. Jesus' death. In the first century in Israel, any woman who was pregnant and was going to give birth was going to go through significant pain and suffering and was risking death. That was her hour. And Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us that in his hour, which was at hand, he was going to go through pain and suffering and not just the risk of death. He most assuredly was going to die. Why? He died the death that we deserve to die. Why? So that we could be born. So that we could be born again, given life, given new life in him. And because that is true, Jesus says, take heart. Have peace. Some of you know the story of Horatio Spafford. This was a man who knew something about tribulation and sorrow and difficult circumstances of life. He was a successful attorney and a real estate investor. He lost a great fortune in the great Chicago fire of 1871. Shortly after that, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. After they got through the initial grief and the funeral, Spafford thought that it would be good if he and his family could just get away for a while, go on holiday. He needed to finish some business, so he put his wife and his four daughters on a ship to go to England so that they could have some time away from all of the agony that they had been experiencing. While the ship was crossing the Atlantic on its way to England, it was involved in a horrific collision with another vessel, and it eventually sank. Some people survived, but 200 people died, including all four of Spafford's daughters. His wife survived, and when Anna got to England, she sent a telegram back to Horatio in the United States, who by that time had heard about the ship sinking, and he opened the telegram and it said, saved alone, what should I do? Spafford immediately set sail for England to be with his wife, and the captain of that ship that he was on knew what had happened to the ship that his wife and daughters had been on. And as they were, at one point during the trip, the captain called Horatio to join him at the front of the ship. And he told him that they were just at that moment passing over the very spot where the ship with his daughters had sunk. As Horatio reflected on all the tribulation that he went through in his life, and especially the, the tribulation of his daughters dying in the shipwreck, he reflected on all of those things and he put down his thoughts. 
And the poem that he read, or the poem that he wrote, worked its way into our hymnal. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, that has taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. In the world, brothers and sisters in Christ, we are going to have tribulation. But Jesus says, take heart. Take heart because Jesus wins. He's overcome the world. And because we know the end of the story, we can have peace and we can take heart. And in Christ, it is well with our souls. Let's pray together. Father, it's one thing for us to read these words of Jesus and perhaps even to be encouraged by what he says to us as we sit here in this place. But we know as we go into this new week, there are so many trials and tribulations, sorrows and griefs, challenges and difficult circumstances that we have to walk through. I pray, Father, that in those moments when we are tempted to give up when we are tempted to doubt, when we are tempted to give in, that you would bring us back to these words of our Savior and that we indeed would take heart, that we indeed would have peace because we know the end of the story. Remind us of that great truth once again as we come to this table, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.